Chapter 33 of The Pretty Lady by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 33. The Roof. The main door of Letchford House was ajar, and, at the sound of G.J.'s footsteps on the marble of the porch, it opened. Robin, the secretary, stood at the threshold. Evidently she had been set to wait for him. The men servants are all in the cellars, said she perkily. G.J. retorted with sardonic bitterness. I'm quite right, too. I'm glad someone's got some sense left. Yet he did not really admire the man-servants for being in the cellars. Somehow it seemed mean of them not to be ready to take any risks, however unnecessary. Robin, hiding her surprise and confusion in a nervous snigger, banged the heavy door and led him through the halls and up the staircases. As she went forward, she turned on electric lamps here and there in advance, turning them off by the alternative switches after she had passed them, so that in the vast, shadowed, echoing interior the two appeared to be preceded by light and pursued by a tide of darkness. She was mincingly feminine, and very conscious of the fact that G.J. was a fine gentleman. In the afternoon, and again tonight, at first he had taken her for a mere girl, but as she halted under a lamp to hold a door for him at the entrance to the upper stairs, he perceived that it must have been a long time since she was a girl. Often had he warned himself that the fashion of short skirts and revealed stockings gave a deceitful youthfulness to the middle-aged, and yet nearly every day he had to learn the lesson afresh. He was just expecting to be shown into the boudoir when Robin stopped at a very small door. "'His ladyship and Mrs. Carter Smith are up on the roof. This is the ladder,' she said, and illuminated the ladder." G.J. had no choice but to mount. Luckily, he had kept his hat. He put it on. As he climbed, he felt a slight recurrence of the pain in his side which he had noticed in St. Martin's Street. The roof was a very strange, tempestuous place, and insecure. He had an impression similar to that of being at sea, for the wind, which he had scarcely observed in the street, made melancholy noises in the new protective wire netting that stretched over his head. This bomb-catching contrivance, fastened on thick iron stanchions, formed a sort of second roof, and was a very solid and elaborate affair which must have cost much money. The upstreaming light from the ladder shaft was suddenly extinguished. He could see nobody, and the loneliness was uncomfortable. Somehow, when Robin had announced that the ladies were on the roof, he had imagined the roof as a large, flat expanse. It was nothing of the kind. So far as he could distinguish in the deep gloom, it had leaden pathways, but on either hand it sloped sharply up or sharply down. He might have fallen sheer into a chasm, or stumbled against the leaden side of a slant. He described a lofty construction of carved masonry with an iron ladder clamped into it, far transcending the net. Not immediately did he comprehend that it was merely one of the famous Letchford chimney-stacks, looming gigantic in the night. He walked cautiously onward, and came to a precipice, and drew back, startled, and took another pathway at right angles to the first one. Presently the protective netting stopped, and he was exposed to heaven. He had reached the roof of the servants' quarters towards the back of the house. He stood still and gazed, accustoming himself to the night. The moon was concealed, but there were patches of dim stars. He could make out, across the empty green park, the huge silhouette of Buckingham Palace, and beyond that the tower of Westminster Cathedral. 
To his left he could see part of a courtyard or small square, with a foreshortened black figure, no doubt a policeman, carrying a flash-lamp. The tree-lined mall seemed to be utterly deserted. But Piccadilly showed a line of faint stationary lights and still fainter moving lights. A mild hum and the sounds of motor-horns and cab-whistles came from Piccadilly, where people were abroad in ignorance that the raid was not really over. All the heavens were continually restless with long, shifting rays from the anti-aircraft stations, but the rays served only to prove the power of darkness. Then he heard quick, smooth footsteps. Two figures, one behind the other, approached him, almost running, eagerly, girlishly, with little cries. The first was Queen, who wore a white skirt and a very close-fitting black jersey. Concepcion also wore a white skirt and a very close-fitting black jersey, but with a long mantle hung loosely from the shoulders. Both were bareheaded. "'Isn't it splendid, G.J.?' Queen burst out enthusiastically. Again, G.J. had the insensation of being at sea, perhaps on the deck of a yacht. He felt that rain ought to have been beating on the face of the excited and careless girl. Before answering, he turned up the collar of his overcoat. Then he said, "'Won't you catch a chill?' "'I'm never cold,' said Queen. "'It was true. "'I shall always come up here for raids in future.' "'You seem to be enjoying it.' "'I love it. I love it. "'I only thought of it tonight. "'It's the next best thing to being a man, being at the front. "'It is being at the front.' "'Her face was little more than a pale, featureless oval to him in the gloom, "'but he could divine from the vibrations of her voice "'that she was as ecstatic as a young maid at her first dance.' "'And what about that business interview that you've just asked for on the phone?' G.J. acidly demanded. "'Oh, we'll come to that later. We wanted a man here, not to save us, only to save us from ourselves. And you were the best we could think of, wasn't he, Con? But you've not heard about my next bazaar, G.J., have you?' "'I thought it was a pageant.' "'I mean, after that, a bazaar. I don't know yet know what it will be for, but I've got lots of the most topping ideas for it. For instance, I get to have a first aid station.' What for? Air raid casualties? Queen scorned his obtuseness, pouring out a cataract of swift sentences. No, first aid to lovely complexions, help for distressed beauties. I shall get Roger Fry to design the station and the costumes of my attendants. It'll be marvellous, and I tell you, there'll always be a queue waiting for admittance. I shall have all the latest dodges in the sublime and fatal art of make-up, and any of the Bond Street gang refuse to help me, I'll damn well ruin them. But they won't refuse, because they know what I'll do. Gontran is coming in with his new steaming process for waving. Con, you must try that. It's a miracle. Waving's no good for my style of coiffure, but it would suit you. You always wouldn't wave, but you've got to now, my seraph. The electric heater works in sections. No danger, no inconvenience to the poor old scalp. The waves will last for six months or more. It has to be seen to be believed, and even then you can't believe it. Its only fault is that it's too natural to be natural. But who wants to be natural? This modern craze for naturalness seems to me to be rather unwholesome, not to say perverted. What? She seized G.J.'s arm convulsively. Concepcion had said nothing. G.J. sought her eyes in the darkness, but did not find them. So much for the bazaar, he said. Queen suddenly cried aloud. What is it, Robin? Has Captain Brickley telephoned? Yes, my lady, came a voice faintly across the gloom from the region of the ladder shaft. "'They'll be coming! They'll be here directly!' exclaimed Queen, loosing G.J. and clapping her hands. G.J. thought of Robin affixed to the telephone, 
and some scarlet-shouldered officer at the war office quitting duty for the telephone in order to keep the capricious girl informed of military movements simply because she had taken the trouble to be her father's daughter and in so doing had acquired the right to treat the imperial machine as one of her nursery toys and he became unreasonably annoyed i suppose you were cowering in your club during the first act she said with vivacity yes g j briefly answered once more he was aware of a strong instinctive disinclination to relate what had happened to him he was too proud to explain and perhaps too tired you ought to have been up here they dropped two bombs close to the national gallery pity they couldn't have destroyed a lance here or two while they were so near there were either seven or eight killed and eighteen wounded so far as is known but there were probably more there was quite a fire too but that was soon got under we saw it all except the explosion of the bombs we weren't looking in the right place no luck however we saw the zepp what a shame the moon's disappeared again listen listen can't you hear the engines g j shrugged his shoulders nothing could be heard above the faint hum of piccadilly the wind seemed to have diminished to a chill fitful zephyr concepcion had sat down on a coping look she exclaimed in a startled whisper and sprang erect to the south down among the trees a red light flashed and was gone the faint irregular hum of piccadilly persisted for a couple of seconds and then was drowned in the loud report which seemed to linger and wander in the great open spaces g j s flesh crept he comprehended the mad ecstasy of queen and because he comprehended it his anger against her increased can you see the zepp murmured queen as it were ferociously it must be within range or they wouldn't have fired look along the lines of the searchlights one of them at any rate must have got on to it we saw it before can't you see it i can hear the engines i think another flash was followed by another resounding report more guns spoke in the distance then a glare arose on the southern horizon incendiary bomb muttered queen she stood stock still with her mouth open entranced the zeppelin or the zeppelins remained invisible and inaudible yet they must be aloft there somewhere amid the criss-cross of the unresting searchlights g j waited powerfully impressed incapable of any direct action gazing blankly now at the women and now at the huge undecipherable heaven and earth and receiving the chill zephyr on his face the nearest gun had ceased to fire occasionally there was perfect silence for no faintest hum came from piccadilly and nothing seemed to move there the further guns recommenced and then the group heard a new sound rather like the sound of a worn-out taxi accelerating before changing gear it grew gradually louder it grew very loud it seemed to be ripping the envelope of the air it seemed as if it would last for ever till it finished with a gigantic and intimidating plop quite near the front of letchford house queen said shrapnel and a big lump g j could see the quick heave of her bosom imprisoned in the black she was breathing through her nostrils come downstairs into the house he said sharply more than sharply brutally where in the name of god is the sense of stopping up here are you both mad queen laughed lightly oh g j how funny you are i'm really surprised you haven't left london for good before now by rights you ought to belong to the hookit brigade do you know what they do they take a ticket to any station north or west and when they get out of the train they run to the nearest house and interview the tenant has he any accommodation to let would he take them in as boarders 
Would he take them as paying guests? Would he let the house furnished? Would he let it unfurnished? Would he allow them to camp out in the stables? Would he sell the blooming house? So there isn't a house to be had on the northwest and nearer than Leighton Buzzard. Are you going? Because I am, said G.J. Conception murmured, Don't go. I shall go, and so will you, both of you. G.J., Queen mocked him, You're in a funk. I've got courage enough to go anyhow, said he, and that's more than you have. You're losing your temper. As a fact, he was. He grabbed at Queen, but she easily escaped him. He saw the whiteness of her skirt in the distance of the roof, dimly rising. She was climbing the ladder out the side of the chimney. She stood on the top of the chimney and laughed again. A gun sounded. G.J. said no more. Using his flash lamp, he found his way to the ladder shaft and descended. He was in the warm and sheltered interior of the house. He was in another and a saner world. Robin was at the foot of the ladder. She blinked under his lamp. I've had enough of that, he said, and followed her to the illuminated boudoir, where, after a certain hesitation, she left him. Alone in the boudoir, he felt himself to be a very shamed and futile person, and he was still extremely angry. The next moment, Concepcion entered the boudoir. Ah, he murmured, curiously appeased. You're quite right, said Concepcion simply. He said, Can you give me any reason, Colm, why we should make a present of ourselves to the Hun? Concepcion repeated, You're quite right. Is she coming? Concepcion made a negative sign. She doesn't know what fear is, Queen doesn't. She doesn't know what sense is. She ought to be whipped. And if I got hold of her, I'd whip her. She'd like nothing better, said Concepcion. G.J. removed his overcoat and sat down. Chapter 34. In the Boudoir. We aren't so desperately safe even here, said G.J., firmly pursuing the moral triumph which Concepcion's very surprising and comforting descent from the roof had given him. Don't go to extremes, she answered. No, I won't. He thought of the valetry and the cellars and the impossible humiliation of joining them, and added, I merely state. Then after a moment of silence, By the way, wasn't it only her idea that I should come along, or did the command come from both of you? The suspicion of some dark, feminine conspiracy revisited him. It was Queen's idea. Ah, oh, well, I don't quite understand the psychology of it. Surely that's plain. It isn't in the least plain. Concepcion loosed and dropped her cloak, and not even glancing at G.J., went to the fire and teased it with the poker. Bending down with one hand on the graphic and didactic mantelpiece, and staring into the fire, she said, Queen's in love with you, of course. The words were a genuine shock to his sarcastic and rather embittered and bullying mood. Was he to believe them? The vibrant, uttering voice was convincing enough. Was he to show the conventional incredulity proper to such an occasion? Or was he to be natural, brutally natural? He was drawn first to one course and then to the other, and finally spoke at random by instinct. What have I been doing to deserve this? Concepcion replied, still looking into the fire. As far as I can gather, it must be your masterful ways at the hospital committee that have impressed her, and especially your unheard-of tyrannical methods with her august mother. I see. Thanks. It had not occurred to him that he had treated the Marchioness tyrannically. He treated her like anybody else. He now perceived that this was to treat her tyrannically. 
His imagination leapt forward as he gazed round the weird and exciting room which Queen had brought into existence for the illustration of herself. And as he pictured the slim, pale figure outside clinging in the night to the vast chimney, and as he listened to the faint intermittent thud of far-off guns, he had a spasm of delicious temptation. He was tempted by Queen's connections and her prospective wealth. If anybody was to possess millions after the war, Queen would one day possess millions. Her family and her innumerable powerful relatives would be compelled to accept him without the slightest reserve, for Queen issued edicts. And through all those big people he would acquire immense prestige and influence which he could use greatly. Ambition flared up in him, ambition to impress himself on his era. And he reflected with satisfaction on the strangeness of the fact that such an opportunity should have come to him, the son of a lawyer, solely by virtue of his own individuality. He thought of Christine, and poor little Christine was shrunk to nothing at all. She was scarcely even an object of compassion. She was a prostitute. But far more than by Queen's connections and prospective wealth, he was tempted by her youth and beauty. He saw her beautiful and girlish, and he was sexually tempted. Most of all, he was tempted by the desire to master her. He saw again the foolish, elegant, brilliant thing on the chimney, pretending to defy him and mock at him. And he heard himself commanding sharply, Come down, come down and acknowledge your ruler. Come down and be whipped. Why had he not been told that she would like nothing better? And he heard the West End of London and all the country houses saying, She obeys him like a slave. He conceived a new and dazzling environment for himself, and it was undeniable that he needed something of the kind, for he was growing lonely. Before the war, he had lived intensely in his younger friends, but the war had taken nearly all of them away from him, many of them forever. Then he said, in a voice almost resentfully satiric, and wondered why such a tone should come from his lips. Another of her caprices, no doubt. What do you mean, another of her caprices? said Conception, straightening herself and leaning against the mantelpiece. He had noticed, only a moment earlier, on the mantelpiece, a large photograph of the Hampstead Moulder, with some writing under it. Well, what about that, for example? He pointed. Conception glanced at him for the first time, and her eyes followed the direction of his finger. That? I don't know anything about it. Do you mean to say that while you were gossiping till five o'clock this morning, you too, she didn't mention it? She didn't. G.J. went right on, murmuring, Wants to do something unusual, wants to astonish the town. No, no. Then you seriously tell me she's fallen in love with me, Con? I haven't the slightest doubt of it. Did she say so? There was a sound outside the door. They both started like plotters in danger, and tried to look as if they'd been discussing the weather or the war. But no interruption occurred. Well, she did. I know I should be thought mischievous. If she had the faintest notion I breathed the least hint to you, she'd quarrel with me eternally, of course. I couldn't bear another quarrel. If it had been anybody else but you, I wouldn't have said a word. But you're different from anybody else, and I couldn't help it. You don't know what Queen is. Queen's a white woman. So you said this afternoon. And so she is. She has the most curious and interesting brain, and she's as straight as a man. I've never noticed it. But I know, I know, and she's an exquisite companion. 
and so on and so on, and I expect the scheme is that I am to make love to her and be worried out of my life and then propose to her and she'll accept me. The word scheme brought up again his suspicion of a conspiracy. Evidently there was no conspiracy, but there was a plot of one. A nervous breakdown? Was Concepcion merely under an illusion that she'd had a nervous breakdown? Or had she in truth had one, and was this singular interview a result of it? Concepcion continued with surprising calm magnanimity. I know her mind is strange, but it's lovely. No one but me has ever seen into it. She's following her instinct unconsciously, as we all do, you know. And her instinct's right, in spite of everything. Her instinct's telling her just now that she needs a master. And that's exactly what she does need. We must remember she's very young. Yes, T.J. interrupted, bursting out with a kind of savagery that he could not explain. Yes, she's young, and she finds even my age spicy. There'd be something quite amusingly piquant for her in marrying a man nearly thirty years her senior. Inceptin advanced towards him. There she stood in front of him, quite close to his chair, gazing down at him in her tight black jersey and short white skirt. She was wearing black stockings now. Her serious face was perfectly unruffled, and in her worn face was all her experience. All the nights and days on the Clyde were in her face. The scalping of the young Glasgow girl was in her face, and the failure to endure either in work or in love. There was complete silence within and without, not the echo of an echo of a gun. T.J. felt as though he were at bay. She said, People like you and Queen don't want to bother about age. Neither of you has any age. And I'm not imploring you to have her. I'm only telling you that she's there for you if you want her. But doesn't she attract you? Isn't she positively irresistible? She added with poignancy. I know if I were a man I should find her irresistible. Just so. A look of sacrifice came into Concepcion's eyes as she finished. I'd do anything, anything to make Queen happy. Yes, you would, retorted G.J. icily, carried away by a ruthless and inexorable impulse. You'd do anything to make her happy, even for three months. Yes, to make her happy for three months you'd be ready to ruin my whole life. I know you and Queen. And the mild image of Christine formed in his mind, soothingly, infinitely desirable. What balm after the nerve-wracking contact of these incalculable creatures! Concepcion retired with a gesture of the arm and sat down by the fire. "'You're terrible, G.J.' she said wistfully. "'Queen wouldn't be thrown away on you, but you'd be thrown away on her. I admit it. I didn't think you had it in you. I never saw a man develop as you have. Marriage isn't for you. You ought to roam in the primeval forest and take and kill.' Not a bit, said G.J., appeased once more. Not a bit. But the new relation of the sexes aren't in my line. New? My poor boy, are you so ingenuous after all? There's nothing very new in the relations of the sexes that I know of. They're much what they were in the Garden of Eden. What do you know of the Garden of Eden? I get my information from Milton, she replied cheerfully, as though much relieved. Have you read Paradise Lost, then, Con? I read it all through in my lodgings, and it's really rather good. In fact, the remarks of Raphael to Adam in the eighth book, I think it is, are still just about the last word on the relations of the sexes. Of times nothing profits more than self-esteem, 
grounded on just and right, well managed, of that skill the more thou knowest, the more she will acknowledge thee her head, and to realities yield all her shows. G.J., marvelling, exclaimed with sudden enthusiasm, By Jove, you're an astounding woman, Con. You do me good. There was a fresh noise beyond the door, and the door opened and Robin rushed in, blanched and hysterical, and with her seemed to crush in terror. Oh, madame, she cried, as there was no more falling, I went up to the roof and her ladyship. She covered her face and sobbed. G.J. jumped up. Go and see, said Conceptin in a blank voice, not moving. I can't. It's the message straight from Potsdam that's arrived. End of chapter 34